What is up, guys? Thank you for sticking around. Thank you for watching yet another Sound Money Fest commercial. I'm so hyped for Sound Money Fest. I'm so excited for that. If you have not got your tickets, if all you can do is come on a Saturday, if you can't take Wednesday through Friday off, fine. Tickets to Sound Money Fest are available on their own. You can still use code YTMAG. You're going to want to come party. We're going to be partying nonstop. John, are you excited to party for Sound Money Fest? I'm super. I'm like, I'm not a big partier anymore, but. You know, if, if the atmosphere is super special, then I'll let myself do it. And I can't think of a more special atmosphere than a bunch of Bitcoiners getting together at the conference and then afterwards letting off some steam. So it may be one of those rare occasions where I, you know, let things uh, get a little looser than normal and suffer the consequences the next day. But it may be it may be worth it. So I'm definitely going to be tomorrow's be part. That'll be tomorrow's problem. But uh, <laughs> in the meantime, we are now joined by our guest today, as you have seen, John Ballas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sorry the daylight savings time still exists. May this be a lesson to us all to not buy when politicians say something is transitory. Yeah, well, that's my bad. So uh, I'm doing great, man. I, and I'm happy to be uh, hanging out with you guys. That's my bad on the daily, daylight savings time front. But it is a, it seems like a fiat thing that needs to go by the wayside when we when we go into the to hyper Bitcoinization. So anyways, we're, we're, we're adding now. it to the to the ongoing list of what does Bitcoin fix? Daylight savings time has now been added. You heard it here first on Bitcoin. (laughs) I'm so sorry that my voice burns your ears, Nikki, more power. Deal with it because I lost my voice at a wedding over the weekend. Uh, John, as we talked about a little bit before uh, we hopped on, I am of the notion that we have entered a Bitcoin bear market. We are way too far off from the highs. Uh, We have not made a new low, which I think is a positive sign. Uh, or at least a short-term low. However, I don't see us making a new high, at least for a couple of years, not until the next happening. I don't know if you feel the same that we're in a Bitcoin bear market or not, but would love your thoughts. Sure. Um, I guess I first have to like, I love bear markets. You know, NGU is great and everyone loves their wealth going up. And I understand that it's a part of the adoption and the more hype, the more people get brought in. But it is like a good period for things to be cleansed, right? Like all the the trash has to be cleansed out of, of the system that came along with the last hype cycle. Um, and, you know, I remember back in the lows of 2015 and things just get nice and quiet, right? Like the, the hardcore stick around and, you know, the hype people leave for a little while. So I, I tend to like bear markets. As for whether or not we're in one now, I don't know. I mean, we're in really uncharted waters, it seems, in, in the global macro and ge- geopolitical situation. It's, it's so hard for me to imagine that we wouldn't hit another high before the next halving, be- just because there's so many reasons for the value proposition of Bitcoin is so obvious and, and becomes more obvious with each passing day. But Bitcoin is still a relatively small drop in a large global financial and monetary bucket. And so, like, do the you know, the winds that blow in those domains just by necessity have like a big impact on Bitcoin? The answer is probably still yes. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if, and generally speaking, I kind of price talk is the least fascinating or interesting thing for me in in Bitcoin, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the macro situation meant that we kept chopping down for another six to 12 months. I, I think we probably will hit another high before the next halving because I just think a lot of questions will be resolved by that time. And yeah, I, I, I think a lot of new interests will by necessity be coming into the space. But 
I, I'm, I'm like a low, I, I cheerlead every time the price drops, right? Because I, you know, I think we're all in that boat. Like if you think something is inevitable, you want to scoop it up on the cheap. And so like, I, I've, I always root for price drops and I kind of lament uh, price pumps. But at the same time, you know, to what degree does Bitcoin doing its thing sooner help save more people and help mitigate some of the, the stress and, and tumult that's going to come from transitioning from fiat to a Bitcoin system? And so in that sense, like maybe it's, it's better that things happen quickly. At the end of the day, it's, under, it's not under any of our control, right? So, um, but I, if, the, if the question is like, will we hit a new high before the next halving? I think we probably will, but I, w- I wouldn't be d- disappointed at all if we didn't. There are a couple of things I want to unpack there. I want I want to discuss in a little bit sort of what we think could be the catalyst to reach these new highs. I think we're on the same page that it'll be more more something to do with like a country adopting or another business adopting Bitcoin on their balance sheets. Um, but I want to first unpack what you were saying about you know getting the 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 bad out of here during the bear market. Uh, I think very famously during the 2017, 28 or 2018 bear market, uh, the ICO craze really got killed. Every single company introduced an ICO, and, and by the end of that bear market, it was very much like a, a taboo topic all of a sudden if you were going to have an ICO. Um, I personally feel like this present market's ICO is the NFT craze that we're seeing going on right now. Um, do you find any similarities between the two? And could you maybe talk a little bit on what were some of the catalysts that really helped people get away from the ICO craze? Because we do still have altcoins. They still exist. Um, but yeah. not to the degree in which we saw them four or five years ago. I totally agree. I mean, I remember back then it was just like you throw up a fancy website with a couple pictures of your uh, influencer advisors and a white paper that nobody's going to read anyways, nor can anyone understand. And then, you know, you raise 50 million in 24 hours off the back of that. And we're seeing the same kind of like irrational exuberance and, you know, ridiculous valuations in in the, in the NFT space. And also a lot of those ICOs came back to life. I mean, I think part of the answer of, of what cleared it out was that Bitcoin pumped first in, in early 2019. Like it came out of the, the late 2018 lows and ripped like to whatever it was, 14K or something um, during that period. And a lot, of the, a lot of the older ICOs just stayed like dead. And I think this one brought in a lot of like Bitcoin maxis to see that Bitcoin was the actual thing. But I also think a lot of them thought that that was the end of the road for a lot of those, those ICO tokens. But, you know, we live in such a clown world that they ended up pumping super hard over the last, whatever it is, 12 months. And then we have the emergence of these NFTs. And what always, like, what always uh, I find difficult to understand is like what, I think the value prop for Bitcoin is like so easy and clear. It's like, you know, clearly the monetary system. And even if you don't understand all the nuance, it's like, if you believe the value prop is possible, i.e. a replacement for the current monetary system, that's a dramatic upgrade and how influential that is on so many different areas of economics and politics and life generally, like that's a big thing, even if you don't get how it all works. But somehow someone's saying like, hey, this is a token that's putting bananas on the blockchain. It's going to revolutionize supply chains or, Hey, this is like an NFT for trading, you know, like the, the narrative is even, 
if you believe in it, it's so inconsequential, at least relative to what the value proposition is for Bitcoin. But it, maybe, that's, maybe that's like the simplicity of it maybe just draws people in. And of course, we live in such a high time pref preference world that people are really attracted to the prospect of like sick gains in, the, in you know, in the next week, you know, like I want a hundred X in the next four weeks or something like that. And you hear the stories of that happening to a select few or supposedly having happened. And then it draws people in. And I think it's indicative of the times we're in, you know, that people are one so greedy and high time preference. And the flip side of that, or like, you know, compounding that is that there's such a sense of deprivation and hopelessness. You know, people are looking out on the world and looking at their lives and there's a lack of meaning and there's a lack of hope for the future. And you just grasp at any way that you think might be able to pull you out of that. And you get sucked in by these narratives of like, well, just buy this NFT or buy this token. And six months from now, you're taking private jets and driving Lambos and everything is fixed. And like, even if that were the case, I mean, I think we all can appreciate that that wouldn't fix the meaning like uh, problem that you may be having. And it certainly doesn't fix anything in the culture that's generating that issue. But, you know, people are, people don't want to do the work. They don't want to have someone sit them down and say, Hey, this is, this is not going to happen overnight. This is going to require big shifts, both in, you know, in the world exterior and in your world interior. And you've got to reframe how you think about some things and you got to reframe how you take responsibility for things. And you got to lower your expectations or at least extend the time horizon on which you're, you're imposing them. And that's not a sexy pitch in, in an environment that is so uh, hype driven and low and high time preference. And, and, and like, like I said, I think, I think a lot of people in the world today are hurting and maybe they don't even recognize that they don't, they haven't put their finger on exactly why, but a lot of people feel that angst and that anxiety and that nihilism and that, you know, lack of, of, hope for the future. And I think they think that the quickest way out of it is just to, you know, get theirs as quickly as possible and, and drown themselves in, uh, you know, fiat extravagance as a means of filling up those concerns or that hole. And I think a lot of us in the Bitcoin space realize that that's definitely not the way to do it. And I think the culture of this space is increasingly revealing that. And, and why it's why it's so appealing and drawing people in is because I'll, I'll, you you once you start to see things differently, well, you have a lot of more questions. You're like, okay, I get like that this we may be revamping the global monetary order. What does that mean then in terms of how I should be orienting my life and what I should be striving for and how do I discover or generate or channel meaning in my life anew? Because I've never had this degree of freedom or sovereignty and that kind of stuff. And these are the conversations we have in this space because. We're all in a completely novel situation now vis-a-vis -vis our degree of freedom over our finances. And as we accumulate more of that and as, we, as our image of the future becomes shaped by that freedom, a lot of new questions like bubble up about how we should live our lives. And I love how these are the type of discussions that we have in this space. You know, it's not about Lambos. It's about you know, health and philosophy and economics and you know, all that good stuff that helps you orient yourself properly in the world. Definitely. Um, I think even to your point, like I'd say a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of students of history. And when you look at it, like the 2017 ICO craze, I would call it very similar to, to the internet, you know, when in the, or the dot-com bust, 
when everyone was saying, oh, we're an internet of things company. And, you know, their stock price, exactly like you said, you know, exorbitant evaluations, they're getting money thrown at them in the form of stocks or even just people giving them loans for whatever reason. Uh, obviously, that just kind of washes out. I think clown world's only gotten worse and people are obviously like pushing themselves off the risk curve. That's why they deviate from Bitcoin or, you know, they're just looking at these high flyer stocks like such as GameStop or AMC in order to beat that. Uh, and then now you even have Nancy Pelosi saying all the money we're printing isn't causing harm to uh, the American economy and inflation. It's just uh, we're actually paying back our debts with creating more debt. If that doesn't seem like the biggest Ponzi scheme uh, ever, I don't know what is. But John, I guess let me form my question. I think while I'm excited about Bitcoin's adoption, what it, what it is, freedom money, and it gives you sovereignty over yourself and your money and finances, we've had two, I'd say, very quick successions of like examples in the real world of this happening. Just look at the uh, Canadian Freedom Convoy with uh, a lot of the truckers getting their finances, insurance, uh, various things shut off from them. And obviously, uh, while they, I don't want to say we botched it, I think it was very successful like distributing Bitcoin, but we didn't realize how quickly the government was going to try and hinder not just Bitcoin, the network, which they can't, but the people that use it, you know, they know the names or they saw the faces of the truckers or even uh, nobody caribou that they were going after him. They showed up at his house, like very much the people that use Bitcoin are the risk, not the protocol itself. Um, but then even a more recent example is Ukraine and Russia. It was this is horrible to say, but it was kind of more comforting seeing that even out of a bad situation, Bitcoin was able to help Ukrainians that were fleeing take their wealth, like we said, God forbid you're under authoritarian regime or war is going on, you can take your wealth in Bitcoin and leave and not lose. Yeah, you lost your house or your home or where you live in your family and community. But at the same time, you're able to store your wealth uh, either in your mind or on some type of device and bring it across the border until you're safe. Whereas also we're seeing the flip side, the Russians, many of the Russian people, I assume, didn't want this war or they were lied to through Putin and his... Uh, propaganda campaign of saying they need to liberate Ukraine. But at the same time, they're the ones being harmed the most by all these swift sanctions. Yeah, it does harm Putin, kind of. But when you're that powerful, I mean, what's a few billion or trillion or whatever his net worth is, it's really hard to decipher. But it's definitely hurting people on the ground as we're watching in real time the Russian ruble hyperinflate. So I guess my question to you after that long-winded rant is, what I feel like while Bitcoin is being adopted at a rapid rate, why don't why do you think people are not seeing all these things and being like, oh, maybe I should get some or maybe I should get off zero and kind of start learning about it? I feel like in still in Normie land, when I talk to people, they're like, oh, what's Bitcoin? I, I've heard about it. It seems like a scam or, you know, they still conflate it to 2017. Why would that be? That's the 21 million Bitcoin question, right? I mean, if I knew that, maybe I'd be more effective at, at uh, you know, spreading the good word. But because I share that sentiment, like, I think all of it, it's, it's binary, right? Like you see it or you don't see it. And once you see it, you know, you very quickly have all your net worth wrapped up in Bitcoin and your job is Bitcoin and your thoughts are Bitcoin and all the conversations are Bitcoin. But prior to that, it's, it, it doesn't even exist. You know, you have blinders on and, you know, if they're pointed this way, if your, perspe your, your perspective is, and orientation is this way, you can't really see what's, you know, what's outside, what's on, what's outside the Overton window, as they say. And, um, so I don't, I don't know what keeps people from, I mean, necessity is, is always the one that pushes people to stuff like this, right? So like most people in relatively stable countries have never felt the necessity. Like even if you're someone in China uh, and, you know, there's capital controls and stuff like that, but 
most of your, your life is transacted and you won and there's a ton of opportunity to make money and you can travel and spend money easily enough. And okay, maybe you can only send out 50 grand a year, uh, you know, officially or, or whatever. But one, if you're rich, you, you've probably found other ways around that by setting up shell companies and this and that. Um, and if you're not, it's not an issue for you. So, but, you know, if you're in Ukraine right now, if you're in Russia, if you're in Yemen, Syria, like all these places where there's a, like, people are asking the question, shit, like I need to move. How do I take my wealth with me in, in a safe way? And, oh, the ATM is not giving me my, my money. And, you know, my gold is confiscated at the border. Well, then you start to, you know, Google how to move money across borders or what's a safe way to, to secure your wealth. And maybe that's how people come upon Bitcoin. And there's a huge incentive to learn about it and adopt it and that kind of thing, you know? Um, but for those of us who are relatively, I mean, if you're a normie in a, in a relatively stable country, I mean, just think about how, I mean, as we watch clown world, you know, and you mentioned Pelosi and Biden and all this stuff, like, you know, that meme with the frog, like just lying on his deathbed and it says dies of cringe. Like, I feel like that every day. Like I saw that recent uh, video from Pelosi and you, I, I kind of like look around like, where the fuck am I? Like, what reality am I in that this is this person speaking is like one of the top politicians in the most powerful country in the world. And this type of rhetoric is accepted. Like there's there's no pushback whatsoever, at least within the mainstream discourse on this type of rhetoric. It's just completely mind blowing to me. And so you have to appreciate that at least a certain demographic or cohort of the population is receptive to that type of rhetoric. And so I think them thinking how corrupted and how disordered and perverted the system is, is not very top of mind for them. You know, and COVID kind of laid that, that bare for a lot of people, like depending on kind of what side you fell on that issue, you could kind of tell were people extremely trusting of the government and the media and big business or were they starting to develop a distrust and maybe question some things and look back through history and find a lot of just cause to question those institutions? And so I think, as is always the case, you know, big, people will get Bitcoin, uh, they'll buy Bitcoin at the price they deserve, and they'll, they'll look into it when they're ready. And like us all, they'll probably look back and be like, geez, I wish I had paid attention sooner. But um, I think this is just a slow grind and, and maybe recent events. And, you know, I, I hope things don't worsen. But in my kind of base case for how this transition takes place, I think things probably do worsen in many different ways and in unpredictable ways to come. Uh, that's going to be the impetus for a lot of interest to, to fall on Bitcoin. And people will have to sort it out if they want to uh, make sure their future is secure, or even have a chance at it. Because as you say, I mean, like what happened in Canada and I'm sure a lot of people were shocked. They're like, wow, in a place like Canada, something, you know, people's bank accounts could be frozen and money could be cut off without, you know, trial or anything. Just, hey, you're, you're involved in a protest that we deem unacceptable. And therefore, we're going to shut off access to your wealth. Maybe we're going to remove, revoke your trucking license. Maybe we're going to get you fired, you know, all this kind of stuff. And of course, the VAX mandate um, issue over the last two years has been a part of that, too. Um, people are, I think that's been a wake up call for people, but still, I mean, for a lot of people, Bitcoin isn't on their radar. And then you have to sift through so much fucking noise, man. Like I've talked to some of these people in Canada and 
you know, crypto and Bitcoin are synonymous for a lot of people. And so people don't know how to sift through all the noise to land on, you know, what's actually legit and engage it properly. And then the final piece I'll say is, as you mentioned about what happened up in Canada, and it seems like uh, nobody caribou was raided in some capacity or something was confiscated. It shows that, as you said, the, the protocol is ironclad, but interacting with it has its risks and different considerations. And this is a learning process for us all. Like we need to figure out best practices, not only for custodying our own Bitcoin and, and transacting privately, but how do we support causes that are important to us in a way that protects us and protects the recipients of those funds? And what is the best way to distribute uh, funds in, in those circumstances? And, you know, there's a, we, there's going to be a lot of attack vectors, I guess. And, and I think a lot of us are going to mature very much in the next few years and probably put on, like, even though we've always claimed to be kind of adversarial thinkers, we were probably just more so like disagreeable and anti-establishment. But now I think, you know, we're going to develop a far more adversarial mindset vis-a-vis -vis, uh, interacting with this system in a, in a way that is safe and secure for us and, and those people that we're interacting with. I think uh, an important thing also that I do want to repeat for those who've been listening to the show, um, what we talk about a lot, uh, the issues going on in Ukraine and Russia, the lack of access to your own funds just north of the border in Canada. Uh, this happened in America, in Atlanta last week, a very prominent African-American uh, director was not granted access to his bank account and was arrested for trying to withdraw $12,000 worth of cash. So this feeds into the narrative of Bitcoin solves this. However, I think there is also a second layer to this sort of question where um, shout out to our colleague Mills, who I think does an excellent job when she has these types of one-on-one -on -one conversations of understanding what your values are. What is your priority with your money? Do you want to save it for your future children? Are you trying to be able to quickly access and transact it on a a regular enough basis, but money that's not losing value overnight? Or is it somewhere in between the spectrum? Or is it even beyond that? Um, and I think understanding that helps people to dive into Bitcoin in the facet that they like or need. One thing that I tend to notice though, both with new people within the Bitcoin space, as well as just people who are anti-Bitcoin, not involved in Bitcoin, whether it's their fiat stooges or their diehard shitcoiner, um, I've never been convinced that their definition of money is uh, something that I buy into. Most of them can't really define money. And I think that is that first step for any and all Bitcoiners down that rabbit hole. When you start to define what is money, and then you start to evaluate it to your own necessities and your own needs, and then you see where Bitcoin fits into that equation. John, I'd love to hear from you. How did that happen for you? How did you first learn about Bitcoin and yourself buy into hey, this aspect of Bitcoin is what I like and what I want to get involved in. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. And uh, I think probably our mutual friend, Breedlove, you know, his whole show is what is money? Because as you start to ask yourself that question, what is money? What does it mean to you? You realize it's not such a simple uh, question to answer. You know, it's, there's a lot wrapped up in it. Um, my own journey, I had been... Uh, for lack of a better term, like kind of a, a contrarian or anti-establishment sort of 
banker for pretty much my whole life. I, I don't know where the, the curiosity came from, but, you know, when I was a, a young kid, I read a lot, you know, I just got my hands on anything I could and all nonfiction, like, I, you know, just like many of us, I think, wanted to try to understand the world. And, um, you know, didn't feel like I was getting that from normal school and, and the conversations and stuff with my peers. So I, you know, just didn't matter if it was history or economics or anything really, you know, just trying to piece together the world. And, um, you know, I started to, when I was, you know, a young teenager, I just wanted to be rich, right? Because I guess that means you have as ultimate optionality, you can do what you want with your life. And that's, that's ultimate freedom, right? And so that's what I wanted. And I thought the best way to make money was to manage money, you know, be a stockbroker or wealth management or something, something like that. And so I, I read and studied a lot about that and read all the classic books and basically wanted to go into that line of work uh, when I started my career. And I did for, for three years. I was in Shanghai and Beijing doing wealth management. And, you know, long story short, really hated that. Didn't like the work, sleazy, douchey, just the whole everything bad about everything we know that's bad about fiat finance. And, um, but all the while, you know, as I was going through that, I started to learn about monetary system, the monetary system and central banking and that kind of stuff. And uh, realized it was, you know, basically all a fraud, just a giant fraud being perpetuated on the world that almost nobody seemed to know about or, and the people that did know about it and were speaking up were obviously maligned and considered conspiracy theorists and all the rest of it. And my response to that was just to become like pretty much a closet gold bug. And uh, it's not a very, there was no other options at the time, right? And all the people that were talking about these issues were gold bugs. And the thesis was something like, this is unsustainable. It's going to come crashing down at some point. You better have some gold. And even though like, if you really play that out, it doesn't make much sense. Like if we get that degree of like collapse and gold shoots to the moon, like even your, your 10th of 10th of an ounce, like little gold pieces, you're not going to be able to go to the grocery store and buy stuff with that. And, you know, as we all often say now, like ammo would probably be a better medium of exchange in, in this sort of apocalyptic environment, but what are you going to do? Right. There was no, nothing, no, nothing else to do about it. And then when Bitcoin, and so kind of, very commonly with those gold bug types are very libertarian, very anti big government and, you know, like, and that was always me, right? I thought people should be able to take the drugs they want to take. They should be able to do what they want to do as long as they're not harming uh, or imposing upon other people. And then Bitcoin came around uh, on my radar. I think in like 2012 or 13, I started seeing some Andreas videos on YouTube and just was struck by how he spoke about Bitcoin. Like at the time I couldn't, when he got into technical details, you know, I wasn't up to speed on that kind of stuff yet, but it's pretty easy to tell when someone's being honest and genuine, especially in an environment where so few people are. And you could just tell like th this person, one is genuinely passionate about this and cares about it and doesn't seem to have a big ulterior motive and seems to be just sincerely speaking about something they think is very meaningful. And so that's what kind of led me to continue listening and, and find other resources. And then, you know, like others, uh, well, actually, I, I wanted to buy, my friend and I wanted to buy DMT on the Silk Road because, you know, we, we've been longtime psychonauts and, uh, and we realized you had to get Bitcoin, but at the time it was super hard and we weren't so sure about sending DMT to our, you know, our mailing address. 
So we pushed out. And then uh, on a trip to uh, Bali, I think in 2014, there was a physical store there. And that's when I picked up my first little bit of Bitcoin. And of course, once you have skin in the game, you start paying more attention and you go down the rabbit hole. And basically, it's been an accelerating journey since, whereas, you know, it started off as being critical of the monetary system and all the deleterious side effects that that has socio, you know, culturally and economically and geopolitically to now, you know, speculating on the relationship between money and God, you know, that's how far things have, have come on that journey. So uh, it's been interesting to say the least, but that's the Coles notes uh, version of my rabbit hole story. My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you are a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. I love that. I, uh, I funny enough, actually was trying to buy pot on Silk Road. Uh, and again, I didn't buy into this whole Bitcoin thing. I was like, what is this? No, that, that was genuinely why I didn't go down the Silk Road path. And I still kick myself over the head for that. Sure. One. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a conversation happening right now in, in our chat that I'd love to bring out live onto this right now. Uh, a debate on the merits of using Bitcoin with the marijuana industry. Um, there are some valid arguments for it. You know, the marijuana industry in America specifically is still federally illegal. Therefore, they're not granted access to banks, loans. It's very difficult for them to even accept, uh, or not difficult, they can't accept like credit cards or payment processors like that again because it's federally illegal. Um, there have been issues with a lot of these dispensaries just holding vaults full of cash, unable to even deposit it into a bank because, again, you're not allowed banking access because it is federally illegal. Uh, enter Bitcoin. It seems like it would solve this problem very quickly and easily for these types of businesses. I am of the notion, however, that I actually think as a very heavy weed smoker, as some of you may tell from my voice, I don't think that that actually helps Bitcoin in the long run. I, I think it helps the marijuana industry. But I think when you have these senile politicians who can barely wrap their minds around Bitcoin and money, and then we're trying to convince them at the same time, hey, let's legalize pot because you've legalized God knows how many drugs that go through the pharmaceutical system, all the alcohol that everyone consumes in this country, all the nicotine and cigarettes and vapes that you allow us to consume. Marijuana is, will slowly and surely be legalized as well. I worry, though, if those two uh, cross paths, there are two issues. One being you feed into that whole, hey, Bitcoin's used by drug dealers, Bitcoin's being used by the marijuana industry, marijuana's a drug, yada, yada, yada. Um, I don't believe marijuana's a drug. I don't believe that Bitcoin is used by any sort of illicit activity more than the US dollar is. But then the second issue I have, which is the bigger one, again, 
these senile politicians are having a hard enough time wrapping their mind around Bitcoin. I don't need them to worry about how Bitcoin is going to be used in the marijuana industry and then carve out certain caveats for that. I'd love your thoughts if you have any on just that intersectionality. Yeah, my thoughts are there's no, we don't get to control how Bitcoin gets used and for what and how adoption ultimately takes place, right? Because we, we kind of think like, oh, we know the value prop of Bitcoin. It's, you know, it's sound money. Then you, you can transact with anyone you like and you can do so privately if you, or, you know, fairly privately or very privately, depending on how you acquired it and how you transact with it and that kind of stuff. And therefore it could, it should kind of like, this should be the process by which adoption happens. But I mean, there's so many factors at play uh, that I just, I think individuals should decide for themselves how they want to use this. I like, I don't pretend to have any authority to impose how people should understand Bitcoin and what the narrative around it should be. And or to think like, oh, like if we can avoid this problem here, then that would be good for adoption and we can get faster to the next stage. Like this is, you know, Pandora's box has been open, basically. This thing's out in the wild now and it's just going to put its roots all through things and innervate things in the way that it does. And if it survives and if we steward it properly, then I think in the end we will, you know, uh, arrive at that place that we often talk about, that hyper-Bitcoinized world. And a lot of things will be different there, but so like, obviously money is so integral to pretty much everything that it's, it's got to come and bump up against so many things that are basically antithetical to it. And that, you know, if that can be a daunting thing, cause you're like, oh my God, everywhere it tries to go because it's antithetical to those things, it's going to be perceived as like evil basically, you know, cause it's so opposite to things. Um, and so I think, you know, the process is going to be really messy where people figure out how to use it for their needs. Uh, and in this particular case, like if, if there's more restric- restrictions placed on them, like how, how and what kind of a solution does Bitcoin represent for those people with those particular issues? Um, I, so I guess my answer is, is not a great one, but I, I just don't concern myself with perception and politics and, and narrative around Bitcoin. You know, I think it is a certain thing and people have the ability and will use it however they please. And it'll be messy and, you know, all sorts of mistakes will be made along the way. But I think ultimately, you know, if we're right about this, it'll wind up where we think it's going to wind up. I mean, this is kind of a tangential example, so it's not, uh, maybe it's not applicable, but, you know, even something like El Salvador being the first to make it legal tender. Cause like prior to that, we we're all thinking like central banks will start making an allocation just as a hedge against the system that they steward. I don't think any of us were thinking like someone would come out and be so, you know, make it legal tender and, and make it kind of like the primary component of, of uh, their platform, you know, building Bitcoin city and Bitcoin bonds and all this kind of stuff. So I think there's many surprises to come, but it, and, and so I think the, the best way to approach all the unknowns and, and all the, the challenges to come is for individuals to be equipped with the best knowledge available to transact for their needs in the most secure and private way possible. And if people take that responsibility upon themselves, then hopefully they can insulate themselves from some of that, those, that turbulence and those challenges. And then, because I, I mean, I often think about it in terms of if Bitcoin really is immutable, right? If it's the unchanging thing, then anything that 
anything else that it comes up against relative to it is changeable, is mutable. And so like as Bitcoin integrates into the current socioeconomic and political dynamic or apparatus as it, as, as it exists today, it's necessarily going to slowly form it to, to its own shape, right? But that apparatus itself thinks it's the thing that things conform to. So it wants to, you know, take Bitcoin and make it conform to it, right? But it doesn't like, so the question is, is like, which one is the most unchangeable? And I think we would all agree that it's Bitcoin. And so that, you know, the political apparatus is going to have to come to grips probably slowly and painfully and with great resistance that they're the thing that has to start to mold and conform to the different, you know, principles and values and characteristics of Bitcoin. And they're not going to like that because, you know, that apparatus likes being the big dog on the block and having all the power and making all the rules. And now they're coming up against something that they can't control and the process of them realizing that and those systems conforming more closely to the attributes of Bitcoin is probably going to be, there's going to be some friction there. Uh, John, I'm going to toss a question that we asked Samson now yesterday. So to your point with El Salvador adopting Bitcoin, uh, I think it kind of shocked many of us. I know uh, I wasn't able to make Bitcoin 2021, but it was uh, exhilarating watching it on Twitter, you know, Jack Maller's speech. And I definitely uh, welled up with some tears watching it, how passionate he was and how excited, like what we said was always going to happen actually happened last summer. Um, but with that being said, I guess while El Salvador adopted it, I, I always thought and talking about bear markets, what about politicians, whether they're US or abroad, that opt to say we should adopt Bitcoin and then ultimately a bear market ensues and crashes, you know, with the hype cycles of it going up exponentially and then crashing. Obviously, politicians are very high time preference where they're trying to just get back in office every two years, every four years, however long it is. I guess what implement what uh what issues do you see with politicians trying to say, oh, we should make Bitcoin legal tender and let's just say they make it legal tender right at the top and then it crashes. And then obviously the political opponents are going to say, look, we lost 50% of our value, 70% of our value, whatever it may be, and say this is a bad idea and either ban it or try and hinder its adoption. Uh, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I shared, even though you, you weren't there in person, I, I certainly had a similar reaction. I was backstage at the time and you know, Jack made the announcement and we were a bunch of us were standing around and, and he came off and went into like the little green room and the bathroom is connected to it. And I was in the ba bathroom at the time and I came out and it was just Jack there with his head in his hands crying right before his family and everyone came in. And so, you know, I was crying, too. I gave him a big hug. Everyone filed in. Everyone was crying. So it was definitely a special uh, moment. But to your point, like, yeah, a lot of political careers are probably going to be destroyed in the process of this thing uh, monetizing and becoming dominant global money uh, because uh, politicians, as you said, are so high time preference and their constituents are often the same way. I mean, just look at, you know, I hate to shit on normie land too much because everyone I think is capable of making rational and logical uh, decisions. But of course, we exist in an environment today where you know, it's information wars everywhere. And, and how do you parse all the information coming at you and all the algorithms working on your consciousness to actually come to some kind of a quote unquote real perception of what's going on? Like what is objective perception in, in this day and age? You know, there isn't really, you know, we all have our biases and prejudices and conditioning, but I think a lot of us attempt to 
see things as clearly as we can so that we can orient ourselves to the most truthful perspective that we can. But a lot of people are very um, reflexive in how they respond to all this information. You know, again, like two examples happening right now, the COVID stuff and the Russia-Ukraine stuff. And I don't know what's going on. I know that almost certainly the situation is more complex than uh, we're led to believe or, or we're told, you know, but basically in the dynamic that exists today, it's like that there's a binary option. Like, is it bad or is it good? Is this the evil or the victim? And in the case of Bitcoin, it's like, did the politician that, that fought for Bitcoin legal tender or to, or to get Bitcoin on the balance sheet, is he bad now because Bitcoin crashed or is he good because Bitcoin's doing well? And decisions get made on those timeframes and in that way. And so long-term, I have hope that, that more people will quote unquote, wake up and, and not be so easily swayed by uh, short-term and overly simplistic narratives. But I think we're, we're in for a bunch of that before all this is said and done. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, like Bukele is a, a great example. Like if Bitcoin crashes and he, his popularity goes down and then the next government comes in and they reverse everything he did, I mean, that's certainly a possibility. And I think we'd all be disappointed in that outcome. But I think those are just, that's just the ebb and flow about how this is all going to play out. And um, at, at the end of the day, like I'm sure you all realize this, but Bitcoin is, is black market money, right? That's what it's intended to be. It was never like, even though I think part of its monetization and adoption will include uh, tacit approval of it, like if it's if it's completely subject to that approval, well then it's already failed. You know, it has to be able to stand on its own feet. It has to be able to succeed without the approval of these institutions of authority and control. And it, that's a tall order in the world today because the grip of those institutions is so strong and so all encompassing. And that's why I think like it's it's not just the case. Well, oh, Bitcoin's here now, and all that stuff will go away. That grip has to be poked at and loosened and like through the course of time, slowly as those institutions, perhaps largely because of, of the economy that's happening within Bitcoin and, you know, the seniorage and the rent seeking that's being removed from those institutions. And as a result, their grip becomes less powerful, but that's going to take some, some time. And, but the, but, but the point is, is I love all these, uh, well, I don't love it, but like, I'm pretty jazzed about the El Salvador situation, right? And that came because of the political apparatus making a decision. But again, at the end of the day, Bitcoin is fuck you money and it's fuck you to, to you know, institutions that would seek to control it. And if it can't function ultimately that way, if it can't resist the encroachments of those institutions of control, then it's not what we think it is. So, you know, I guess that's my perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, disagree with the idea that it's fuck you money especially when you stop for a moment and think like what is the main money source or what is the main type of money in the world today and that's the u.s dollar and those countries that have been exiled don't benefit from or just are not cozied up to the dollar america or the printer uh they stand to benefit a lot more from adopting bitcoin at an earlier point um to play a little bit of this political or geopolitical game theory 
we're seeing a lot of conversation out of Russia ahead of the Ukraine invasion about them possibly legalizing Bitcoin and going back and forth. It was Putin that made the ultimate declaration saying, we're going to figure this out. We have too much of a competitive advantage to not. Mm. Given where we are in the world right now, with Russia slowly but surely getting kicked out of every single situation, minus OPEC, because they are the largest cartel in the world, at what point does uh, uh, Russia adopting Bitcoin raise alarm bells here in America? Or does it not in your mind? No, it, it, it probably does, you know, with these uh, self-serving incompetent politicians and and constituents that we've already referred to i mean again it, it's just such a easy narrative right it's like oh the evil guy adopted it it must be evil uh, as a result of that you know just by association and so that i mean that's totally a possible narrative um but again if that narrative is capable of stifling it then you know is it is it what we thought it was and maybe that's a bit harsh like because this been, you know, maybe it stifles it for a time and Bitcoin development and things go a little bit more underground and the whole political uh, movements in the West, at least, that are, have been supportive. Maybe they, you know, get reined in a little bit and there's less uh, institutional and authoritative support for it. But it still develops, you know, below the surface. It still percolates. People still are able to adopt it and use it. And then, maybe, you know, the, the geopolitical situation changes and people's opinion change with it and you know on it marches but it, it could certainly be the case that, that 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 happens and i mean that that was the case i mean we keep getting that kind of fud intermittently right as you said right at the beginning like bitcoin is used for criminals and drug dealers and all that kind of stuff it's like bitcoin if bitcoin is freedom money for you it means it's freedom money for everybody so if we're going to be in a future where that's the case how should you judge and interact with people that you disagree with ideologically or behaviorally or whatever, right? Because you know you're, you're not going to be able to punish them financially. You're not going to be able to raid their country and steal their gold. You're not going to be able to cut them off from the, the money exchange system like SWIFT. You know, you can do trade sanctions because those are actual goods crossing borders. So that will still be applicable in the future. But, you know, how, how should we, I mean, how does, how does, real politic and how does warfare change in a Bitcoin future? And, you know, of course, we like to say that the logic of violence changes as a result of the, the highest concentration of wealth being in a, in a basically digital form and being inaccessible to, not inaccessible, but more, uh, more easy to secure than physical wealth. And so that changes maybe the, the incentives to violence. But it's an, it's an interesting question how that plays out in the future. Um, but I think we, I mean, when I have conversations about Bitcoin with people, I guess, especially in the, like the, the Uber woke culture we're in today, like people are so used to like, oh, well, now that someone's been condemned by the dominant narrative, what is being imposed on them? Okay. So unvaccinated people are bad people. Okay. So are we, are we firing them now? Is that, is that how is that the solution to this narrative or like Russia and them are bad. So we're doing X now or, you know, and I'm only using those two because they're top of mind. There's a million different ways that could be applied. And so I'm hoping in the future that people's understanding of Bitcoin is at a minimum that these are rule. This is rules without a ruler. So if you conform to the rules of the system, your access 
is on the same basis as anyone else's. And, and nobody can change that. And I'm sure there'll be lots of, of bans and restrictions and attempted confiscations and stuff along the way. Like, this is probably going to be pretty messy, right? I mean, I, I like to keep a fairly optimistic view on things. And that's, that's one of the trickiest things in this time. You know, we're talking about how to ground your, your perspective in the most truthful way possible, like with as much clarity as possible. And like, I think a lot of us in Bitcoin land can, can either parse the information that's coming at us and kind of see signal through noise or recognize when we have to abstain from something. Like I know the Russia-Ukraine situation has been brewing for a long time. There's a lot more geopolitical details involved in what's happening there. It's not just evil man decides he wants more territory, you know, for his country. There's a lot going on. But I, you know, and I've read some stuff on it and dug into the history, but, but I'm still like, don't know. Don't know enough. Don't really have an opinion. And that's, you know, side note, that's not even really permitted in this day and age. Like in the small talk that happens at you know, around the water cooler or the dinner table, like you kind of have to, to choose a side. So, you know, I think we're pretty good at doing that, you know, Bitcoiners generally speaking, but as to like how to walk the tightrope of like being optimistic and seeing a hopeful future, but bracing and preparing for and not being delusional about what has to happen for this transition to take place, that's a, a far more difficult one to, to navigate because, uh, well, because, you know, the future is always uncertain and we see so much hope and we're so excited by the prospect of this new tool for freedom and liberty in the world. But, but then we're like, oh, but the world is really far down the other way. <laughs> so how, like, what's the process of it being like turning around the Titanic, basically? And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're the last two years, especially, I mean, you kind of asked me about bear markets at the beginning like when, when the COVID crash happened in March, um, and, you know, there's a lot of chatter about all this stuff. I think that woke up a lot of people that have been here for a while. Like it's fun to just watch number go up as you scroll through Twitter and share memes and stuff like that. But I think we're all starting to understand that this is going to require us to a greater perhaps personal transformation than we thought. And some of that will be, we will be good, right? There'll be like natural improvements on our lives that maybe we were putting off, but others will, I think there'll be like a very, uh, we'll all mature a lot through this process. I mean, if we really are participating in one of the most profound transitions in, you know, human collective interaction in history, and I think we are, then I don't think we're going to get out of it being the same person that we came into it with, right? Like if we really are aligned with these principles that we think Bitcoin represents, like truth and freedom and liberty and sovereignty and responsibility, uh, those are going to be put to the test. We're not just going to be able to pay them lip service and see it through to the bright orange future. I think we are actually going to have to show how much we are actually about that stuff. If we're going to see both this thing, if we're going to steward this thing properly, and of course, more importantly, if we're going to use it properly to gen to create the life that we want to create on the back end of this and contribute to a culture that we want to, that we think is, you know, worthwhile. I want to share a story um, that was brought to my attention yesterday that I think is valid off of what you said, John, and then present a, a broader question, because I think what you're really asking and the call to action here is we all need to be critical thinkers about everything that's presented to us. And we need to, I think, work out that muscle more and more. 
um, yesterday, I believe, or maybe two days ago, the Brooklyn Nets played the New York Knicks in an NBA regular season matchup based on the vaccine mandates in the state of New York versus the vaccine mandates set for by the NBA. Kyrie Irving, who is arguably one of the best players in the league, unvaccinated, was not allowed and has not been allowed to play uh, for net for the Nets in home games. Now, this is where it gets a little annoying, in my opinion. Kyrie Irving, not, not listed as playing in the game, he was able to purchase a ticket courtside, show up to the game without a mask, say hi to his teammates and friends, and even dab up and give a hug to Kevin Durant. So at what point? I, I, I'm genuinely flabbergasted at this point of what are we saying that it's the ball? The ball is the medium of, of what is sending COVID back and forth to people like, come on, Adam Silver, this is me calling you out because you have been one of the best commissioners in this new iteration with the Rob Manfeld and the, oh my God, I can't think of the asshole who runs the NFL. Roger Goodell. Thank you. Uh, you are, in my opinion, like there's no no one close to you. You have managed and run the NBA so well, except in this moment right now. Um, and I think it goes back to this idea of you're not thinking critically about the issues at hand and what we can do to, I think, create a different system. We don't have to adhere to the system that's been created or set forward by anyone. You are a private entity, a private business. You can operate as you see fit. Um, so my question then to you, John, is how do we, how do we practice that? How do we ask our friends and family to be critical thinkers in, in everything? Because I think that's what it comes down to is if you're not thinking critically about one thing, you slowly allow yourself to just buy into the narrative of everything else because it's easier to just be told what to think and what to do than it is to pause, digest, and think about what do I need to do that's best for my family and adheres to the values that I live by. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. A, a quote comes to mind, which I'm, I'm going to butcher here. And it's a bit, I mean, it assumes that we are the ones thinking critically here, which I think a lot of people would take issue with, right? Like the people that you're referring to would be like, no, I'm the critical thinker here. There's a genuine emergency and we need to do everything I can, if we can if it saves one life, blah, blah, blah. So you're not the critical thinker and you're not the compassionate person. And so this is part of the divide, right? But the quote that comes to mind is like, I don't think our job is to wake up the sheep. It's to wake the sleeping lions. It's something it goes something like that, right? And so I, I, I think we're going to waste a lot of resources and breath and stuff if we try to get into all these confrontations with people that are so that think so op oppositely to us. I don't think we should uh, burn bridges and stuff like that. But you know, my approach has basically just been to abstain from conversations that I kind of know are not going to go anywhere productive. Whereby one of the reasons why, you know, I love doing the podcast and I love connecting with Bitcoiners and I talk to a lot of Bitcoiners offline, you know, just on calls like this um, is because those are the people I want to connect with. These are the people that not through my convincing them, but to, through their own process of trying to figure things out, have come to a similar what I think is, is clarity, but that's my own bias because they're sharing my perspective. But I think they're seeing things clearly and they're they're. They're recognizing that it's, you know, there's lies and dishonesty and incompetence and cowardice everywhere. And they want to basically focus on the things that they can control. They want to interact with the people that uh, 
are aligned with similar values and principles. They want to build things. They want to, you know, contribute to solutions. I mean, in the conference coming up is such a great uh, example of that because, you know, last year I came out of Canada to go to the conference. And so, as you might imagine, in Canada, I was surrounded by, you know, the, the former type of uh, mindset a lot. And then coming to the conference, like everyone you talk to, it's just like you're immediately on the same wavelength. And of course, you're not the same people. You have different interests and different experiences and stuff like that. But it's just great that you line up on some of the most important principles. And then from that basis, you can have honest, open conversations. And what's so great about that is like when I have conversations with people, I'm not trying to get my point across and impose anything on them. Like I think that the purpose of dialogue is for both people to come together, share their perspective, and hopefully generate something novel that both people can then use to integrate back into the perspective and, and refine it even more. Whereas so much in the discourse today, whether it's happening like around a dinner table at a bar or on the mainstream, you know, media stuff, it's, you know, conform to my narrative or I dismiss you in some way, or I cancel you in some way. You're a racist, misogynist, this, that, the other thing, because you don't think the same way that I think, you know? And so I think we focus on, building, refining ourselves, building relationships with, with people that have similar values. And, you know, I, I, I've talked about this a little bit, but I think most people come to Bitcoin for number go up, right? Or at least that's been the case up till now. I think it, it, you know, it could easily be the case that as we move forward in the next five to 10 years, people will come for the culture more so than number go up. I mean, again, the, the conference is a great example of this. I mean, there's going to be a rad party on the last day of it. You know, people are just celebrating being together and being a part of this revolution. Like in, a, in an environment where every, in normal, in normie land, everything is so contentious and everything is so uh, tense and everything is so nihilistic and there's so little meaning and there's so little independent thought that when people see this burgeoning culture where people are radically individualistic, but they're coming together over shared values and they're exchanging ideas and they're refining themselves and they're, bidding, they're building more stable and meaningful and productive lives and communities. Like people are like, yeah, I want to fuck, I want some of that. That looks great, you know, and that feels good. And so I think what we do is we focus on that. We focus on achieving that for ourselves and contributing to it in our communities and in in, in the culture we're a part of. And that ultimately, you know, that, that counterculture ultimately becomes the dominant culture. You know, that's hyper Bitcoinization in, in, in kind of my view. Not everyone is going to be as hardcore as the early adopters, but I think, I mean, I think it's inarguable that if we kind of agree that base layer fiat generates a distorted culture and a, a perverse kind of culture, then base layer Bitcoin is going to generate a different kind of culture. And we're the first ones that are being upgraded to that culture and participating in it and being open to being, you know, refined and formed by those principles and, and the people we people and ideas we interact with. So I think all we can do is kind of uh, throw our hands up. I mean, and the last thing I'll say is I stopped trying to determine the logic or reason behind any of the madness happening in clown world a long time ago, right? Like my family's in the restaurant business in Canada. And, and you have to appreciate that a lot of time the business owner doesn't want to do this shit or the head of the NBA might not want to do it, but there's so much political pressure. There's so much like pressure coming from all angles to do something. And that's why so many of these solutions are so nonsensical because they're literally only there 
to signal that we're doing something like we're doing something. We're a part of the solution and people don't care if it's effective or not. Like those glass dividers you put it, they put in restaurants for a while or the plastic ones, like you can't hear shit when you're speaking at it. So you come around it so that you can speak face to face with the person behind the counter. And then you're just back to normal. Right. So none of it makes any sense. Um, or very little of it makes any sense uh, if any of it does, but we're in, we live in a culture where the signal, you know, <laughs> virtue signaling or signaling that you're doing something to conform to the narrative is more important than actually logically reasoning about the issue and taking what is the most sensible action to take. And that's, that's why we call it clown world. And, um, I, you know, we're, we're going to have a lot of entertainment in that regard. Uh, I still, still moving forward but hopefully we're all contributing to something that is again antithetical to that that's far more grounded in logic and reason and truth and you know we'll get a lot of stuff wrong and we're all imperfect individuals and that's always going to show up in our behavior and the cultures that stem from our behavior but i think it's going to be a massive upgrade to what, what we're contending with right now Definitely. Uh, and speaking from waking lions among the sheep, uh, John, I really got to commend you, Gigi. I think it was Robert Breedlove. And I know I'm missing someone when you guys talked with Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, watching a guy understand Bitcoin. I think, you know, Sailor might be the only one that rivals him. Uh, obviously, he was announced as a speaker at Bitcoin 2022. I'm really excited to listening to him speak. I think he's a really elegant speaker. Sometimes I get uh, lost within his speaking because he's so uh good with his words and I have to go back and like chew on it for a while. But I guess uh, going, I guess pivoting now back to, I guess, bear market and, and bull markets and such, I see in the next five to 10 years, things are going to be very tough, I believe, for the G7 nations. So the United States and, and the Canada's alike that, and I keep getting to this point in my logic where I, I like get stuck that uh, I'm, I'm going to steal something from BTC Sessions or Ben from BTC Sessions. He says like Bitcoin flushes out bad behavior. And he was saying on his one of his most recent uh, Why Are We Bullish podcasts that he loves it. Like he it hurts, obviously, in, in the short term when we watch as the price cascades down because of long liquidations of people either taking really long positions or shorting it or whatever and getting liquidated up or down. But he always is like, you know, good. I'm glad that this billion dollar hedge fund or billionaire gets liquidated out of their position for doing something ridiculous, taking out 40 to one leverage or whatever it may be. But I guess my, my thing is connecting Mark Moss's end of an empire thesis, you know, that the fourth turning and the different business cycle lining up with the empire, ending of empire, as well as the political cycles. I guess I'm a little worried for, for the G7 nations. And I know that's selfishly saying this. But while Bitcoin flushes out bad behavior, it can be said the U.S. and Canada and the G7 nations or, you know, the U.S. dollar hegemony alike have had bad decisions. And we're watching this play out in clown world and the real world. So I see a world where, you know, we're having a Bitcoin bull market, but at the same time, our country's even getting worse and worse, meaning that like, let, I'm going to use this perfect example. Let's just say there's 10 million Bitcoins between Canada and the U.S. alone. But we need to send those goods abroad for whatever reason to get oil, to get, you know, whatever it may be from China, Russia, Taiwan, Vietnam, other countries that can give us cheaper goods. But uh, even to China's point, they don't want the U.S. dollar anymore. They want the goods. Uh, we were talking about earlier that they've kind of have a deal set up with Saudi Arabia that while they price it in U.S. dollars, they really just want the oil and they have first right to refusal to it and they'll take it and they'll sell it if they need be. I guess my point is, in a hyper-Bitcoinized world, do you see the U.S. and Canada 
coming down from where they are as not being global powers. But I guess, how do we get the SACs back into our economies if we export them for cheaper goods, whatever they may be? Uh, and like my, my meaning is that the price is going up, but like our economy is getting worse because we have less of the Bitcoin network, whether it's in you know Satoshi's or whatever uh, unit of account we're using, Bitcoin or whatever. I guess as we're getting poorer as countries, but how do we bring it back into our country? I guess to be more productive or is it like, do we have to start doing something heinous to try and get it back in? Uh, I'll pass <laughs> that to you. Well, I mean, whether you're an individual or you're a country, the way you get SATs flow is you provide value. I mean, that's, that's the beautiful thing about this emerging system. You know, you can't so easily, or in perhaps many cases, not at all, you can't rent seek and you can't cozy up to the spigot and just get easy, cheap, new money. You know, so there will definitely be a, a reckoning in that regard, like the countries that have benefited from reserve currency status or other, you know, uh, monetarily derived uh, powers, let's say, uh, they're going to have to reorient things. And maybe even, you know, nation states will take on a different look. Maybe they'll shrink, you know, maybe we'll go, maybe some other form of governance model will slowly emerge to account for this um, you know, I like to think of it as, first of all, I think we'll look back and be like, wait, so every country had their own currency and the currencies were traded against each other and global trade had to contend with the ability for every country to manipulate their currency. So if like a country was just like, oh, our exports are too expensive. All right, we'll print another 25% of the currency or something like that. And they'll, and we'll, they'll drop down temporarily before the market figures out and rebalances. And that'll be good for us. Like, It'll be seen as utter insanity that that's how things were, were, were structured. And with Bitcoin, I mean, and not to mention all like, you know, the friction of sending money, right? Like you send a swift transfer and it's three to five business days and it has a high cost and it has the currency convert everywhere. Like I just imagine all the silos being lifted. And what we have is just a network of value transfer that nobody can change. And what that ends up doing is it ends up finding the highest concentration of value for whatever demand is for, for whatever is being demanded. And that ends up accruing the sats because for what's being demanded, this provides the best value. And I mean, over time, I think you have to have a faith that that will mean that it'll orient all of our behaviors uh, more properly at aligning with what is most valued and determining how we can uh, satisfy that value to derive some for our own life. And, you know, it probably means that the parts of the world that have been disenfranchised by, you know, colonial powers and uh, predatory, you know, monetary policy, whether it's through IMF or through an individual country or whatever, like, you know, the global South, let's say, broadly speaking, um, they'll probably be far better off because the playing field will be more easy, will be more even. And, you know, if they have resources or, you know, human or natural that they can bring to bear that are demanded by the market they're they should be able to do so without being um, stifled in various ways from, from doing so. And so I'm super excited for that because it, then, it, I mean, isn't that what we all want? Like when we're, when, when we're in the, the park at, at grade school, right? Like we, there was always a cheater, right? Like, hey, fuck, you're, you're cheating, right? Like, you're, you're not abiding by the rules of the game, and that's not fair. And to know, and, and things have been so not fair in the world for a long time, and that's me meant that, like, power and wealth has accrued to a very small group of individuals that 
are at the top of that power hierarchy and at the detriment of everybody below it. And so what I'm super excited by is when you're on an open playing field, all the responsibility gets shifted back to you, right? It's not about who did what. It's not about, oh, I want to get closer to this person because they're closer to that person and they have a greater advantage here and there. If it's all even, then it's all on you. And it's like, okay, how are you going to provide more value? Why are you deserving of more value? What type of latent talents and skills do you have within you that you can refine such that people find your work or whatever you do more valuable? And if, if you can do that, it's almost guaranteed the value will accrue to you because nobody can stop it from accruing to you if you're genuinely providing value. And so I just, that's super exciting. Then we get real competition and we get all the, all the, the blockages to real value being expressed and being and accruing to the people that are most capable of providing it being removed. And I mean, it, I think it goes without saying that that at a certain point has a material impact on the structure of the nation state, right? Because the nation state derives, it's at the size it is and has the power that it has largely because it's able to siphon off the wealth of its population surreptitiously through inflation and, and through seniorage, right? So when that's no longer the case and the large bureaucratic apparatus is, they can't feed that to the same extent, well, what does the nation state look like? Maybe it, maybe it fractures, maybe it takes on another form. Um, who knows? I mean, these are questions that we're, I think we're likely gonna find out, um, but the punchline is gonna be that value will be able to flow more easily and more efficiently and more fairly to the people that are most providing it. And that may be a bad thing for America world police as it exists today, but it may be a good thing for the world at large. Um, you know, so I think we'll have to reframe what we even want. Like, I'll be the first to say, I, I, as far as like founding of countries goes, I mean, I think America is probably at the top of the list of being founded on the best principles and with the, a structure that is most impervious to being corrupted. But as we're seeing today, it don't really matter. You know, maybe it lasts for a time, but it's still able to be corrupted and it's still able to do even founded on such great principles. It's still able to be used to uh, carry out so much damage to the world in various forms. And so I think, you know, I, I mentioned this in an article I wrote just a few days ago regarding the conference, but like, I know this sounds a bit shitty and it's still in this day and age, but I don't consider myself a Canadian really. Like I, at least I don't feel an allegiance to that. Like I feel an allegiance to people, well, to principles and values and people who share them. Like why would, you know, I had nothing to do with where I was born. Nobody does. And why should we, should we feel an allegiance just because of that? There may, I'm really grateful that I grew up in a, in a stable and a safe environment because that allowed me to, not have to worry about those things. And I could focus on other interests and other, you know, development, but the more, the most important things that as far as I can tell in life are, what do you value most? What's at the top of your value hierarchy? What are the principles that you most orient your life by? And if that's the case, then your countrymen, as it were, like your brothers and sisters should be the ones who hold those same values and principles in just as high esteem. And that's what I feel like. And that's why going to the Bitcoin conference, I feel like I'm going home because it's, it's with a high concentration of people that value the same values and principles as me. And as a result, you know, feel similarly about things and have similar interests and 
uh, want to orient themselves similarly in the world uh, instead of some arbitrary lines that are drawn on a map that, you know, if you look at the history of, of nation states over the last 5,000 years, guess what? They get redrawn a lot, you know, give it some time and, you know, Germany's not Germany and Italy's not Italy and Iran's not Iran and America won't be America. Like all that stuff is transient. What's eternal? Eternal is being, you know, aligned and committed to truth and freedom and liberty. And, and uh, those are things that you decide internally, not, you know, not some arbitrary thing external to you. So I have, yeah. I have to chime in with this. Everyone will always be corrected on this show, John. It's not you. I've corrected Chris numerous times. I've corrected countless other guests. It's you, Ron. Uh, Iran is an Iranian citizen. It is my duty to correct everyone. Thank you. Uh, however, Thank you. I want to I want to like really explore this because you're absolutely right. The idea that nation states are like the idea of nationalism, pride for your country, like it's all a fallacy. It's all made up by an arbitrary entity that said like, oh, we're going to group you guys together and for these reasons and whatnot. And I would even take it further. I would say religion is another example of that. That to a degree it was created through these ideas of these are the values that we believe and so therefore you should you should buy into what we say if you agree with some of these values i would say it goes as far back as you know when we were hunter gatherers and really our only motivations were just what what am i going to eat am i safe are my kinsmen safe and i think it's about building those communities like you have mentioned within the bitcoin community uh and other such communities that exist one of my favorite things about sports, one of my all-time favorite writers, Rick Riley, uh, put it so perfectly. Sports are the only reason why your 85-year-old grandma can have a legitimate case to hate her next-door neighbor because they have a Packers flag out front and she is a Vikings fan. Uh, and I think that to a degree, we always will look for, as human beings, some reason to be in a group or in a clan or a kinsman. Um, whether it's because we agree on the financial system completely uh, being destroyed or that our leadership is a complete farce. Um, I do, however, challenge this notion that like everyone in Bitcoin has the same values. My value proposition for joining Bitcoin is different than yours and it's different than Chris's. And I think as we expand Bitcoin's network to hopefully in the near future include all 7.9 billion people on this planet, I think you will enter into this realm of well, there are some Bitcoiners who value it for this reason and that reason. Um, thankfully, this is the only true democracy we have where you have to have a majority consensus to make a change. Uh, I want to present you the opportunity of you have 51% of the entire nodes backing whatever change you want. Is there a change you would make to the Bitcoin protocol right now as it sits? That's a good question, but I'll, I want to address something else first. And I agree, of course, we don't all share the same principles and values. And uh, this, which is why I usually say like a high concentration of those principles and values at an event like the conference or something. And of course, just generalizing in general. Um, but it, I think it is the case that, for example, like Bitcoin allows you to have such a strong, let's say, relation to your monetary property which you might say is emblematic of, of your work or your time or your energy or what have you, um, that cannot really be violated without your, your participation. And so I think that that kind of necessarily means that freedom, at least of that kind of your optionality in a market-based world, uh, is a value that you almost kind of have to ascribe to if you see value in, in Bitcoin. And so I, I'm sure we'll all, I mean, I'm sure we all have 
a variety of differences and on different things, but, and your point about, uh, you know, religion and, and this, cause it makes sense to align. Well, let's put it this way. What orient, like what determines what you're going to find valuable in the world from, you know, uh, an object that you might buy for your home to your, um, your highest ambition for your life. And, you know, basically if we borrow from, you know, Peterson's framing on this stuff, it's like, we all have value hierarchies internally. And when we confront things, those, we, that thing enters our value hierarchy and there's a process of comparison to determine where it lands. And those value hierarchies end up generating something that's at the top, something that's a, that is of the most value to us that helps us orient ourselves in relation to all other values. And you might call that God, or you might call it a spirituality, or you might just call it the highest values and principles that you hold, but they're going to have an influence on how you engage the world. And so I think when you see others for whom the same values and principles or ideas have ascended to the top of that hierarchy, you say, hey, you're the type, like the world is uncertain and the world is threatening. Let's cooperate because we seem to, to, to be lining up on a lot of things and let's cooperate for our mutual self-interest, you know, so we both can be better and maybe you know so nation states way way back or tribes or you know when they began to happen when we first started to cooperate it was probably for that reason and at the founding of america you know probably something similar people got together and said hey we don't like the current situation these are some of the principles and values that we think are uh the best and are most integral to developing a society of, of freedom and prosperity and peace Everybody in agreement, like, you know, how, sh how should we sort this out? And you end up working together to, um, you we end up working together in accord with those values that you've identified and that you've put forward. And as you say, I mean, I think religion, the religious enterprise is very much about that too. And in both cases, both politics and religion, uh, imperfect people and corrupt institutions get in the way. And that becomes problematic at kind of tainting the original, maybe good altruistic pure intentions of the enterprise and you know that's why again bitcoin is so interesting because it's like an institution but it can't be corrupted and this actually brings me to your direct question is i wouldn't change anything because i think changing it is like that's the 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 biggest thing we could do wrong because we're we're always going to have well you know we're imperfect and we, well, there's a lot of information we don't have and that we have a lot of biases that we're not aware of. And so, and, and we don't have a full understanding of how the world works and we don't have an understanding of many things. And so we're always going to think that something should be a certain way. And I think what Bitcoin presents us with possibly for the first and only time is, okay, you have this opportunity to express, communicate, store value in this way to have kind of like a a social contract that contains those things i think if we decide oh well the economic like the the security doesn't really work out the way we thought it will and maybe we need a little bit of ongoing inflation to incentivize the security of the network moving forward so let's just tweak it that way a little bit or you know let's tweak it this way a little bit because right now the, the political winds or the dominant mindset or narrative of the time dictates that this might be a good idea. Then we were in this, well, I think doing it, we, we corrupt it. I mean, that's what corruption is. Like we, we tend to think of corruption as ruining something, but that's usually determined in hindsight. Corruption is basically just changing something. 
And I think Bitcoin's immaculate conception and the way it kind of percolated up and before anyone really noticed it. And I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think it's immutability is it's potentially most valuable characteristic. And I think maybe our most important task as stewards of it is to not change it in, in, in those fundamental ways and to just recognize that we don't know the extent of that, the dynamic that exists between human behavior and an immutable, unchangeable, absolute object. And we sh I think we need to have some kind of like even a faith that submitting to that immutability is probably the, the way in which we derive the most benefit from it rather than assuming to always know what needs to be changed about it to optimize it for our transient needs. Because I think if we pursue that path, we end up destroying what's most valuable about it in the end. And that would be a real shame. We as humans have this inherent flaw, it seems, to buy into this broader narrative and find groups that we align with. I very loudly throughout my life always condemned religion as being one of the main catalysts for so many of the wars that we've seen. But even if we were, we were to remove religion uh, or remove nation states, like we would find other ways to band together and find ways to fight with those who disagree or oppose us. Um, I have very loudly said, I, I changed my mind a little bit where I do see there is, there is validity in the maxis that have helped keep Bitcoin alive and going up until this point. There is going to come a point, however, where those who get involved in Bitcoin are not going to be Bitcoin maxis. They're not even going to really understand money. They're just going to do it because they live in El Salvador and their president said, hey, you have to accept Bitcoin for your business now. How do we help those people see what we see? Is there some dialogue that you like to use or any sort of points that you like to highlight for them to help them better digest Bitcoin when they may be forced, where it may be forced upon them and they be maybe a little bit have that feeling of my back's against the wall. I'm going to push you back if you're pushing me there. It's a great question, man. I, the answer is no. I don't, I don't really have like an easy answer. I think we all end up having this understanding that we have through a lot of cuts and scrapes and getting wrecked. And, you know, that's just kind of the hero's journey of this thing is taking your licks as you come to a better understanding of it all. And you'd like to help people avoid that, but there actually might even be a kind of a interesting corollary to religion here. Whereas, you know, I don't want to, we don't need to break into the, you know, the religious discussion generally, but just to say that I think part of the reason why those institutions may have become corrupted is because they have tried to control the intermediation between individual and whatever that higher power source of meaning value might be. And then, you know, the imperfections of those people and the understandings of those people get in between and they become too powerful there. And, and, and the people that they're trying to ostensibly help end up thinking that, you know, those people are the authority on things or something like that versus whether it's your own relationship with the quote unquote divine that you, you know, stumble through life and ultimately discover for yourself or with, whether it's your own relationship with understanding the, the unique value of Bitcoin, what it is and why it should remain as such. I think probably needs to happen on your own as well for it to have any sort of staying power, right? Because we all know this, like if someone just, this is why you got to kind of got to learn hard lessons yourself in life. Because if someone just tells you, hey, like, don't do this, you, 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 at some point you may take it for granted. You may say, oh, like, why, why was it so important? Like, 
like, why did, why shouldn't I do that? And then you disappear or then the institution institution leaves or the wise old man dies. And the next generation doesn't feel the salience of, of the understanding or the message and they make the mistakes. So I think what we need to try to do, or I think what is happening and my own opinion on it is back to the individual, the individual take, taking the responsibility and having the courage to pursue that journey on their own. And maybe there are some ways that, that they can be assisted, but always hopefully not presuming to be authoritative on it and not presuming to tell people what it is and what it should be and allowing them to discover it for themselves. And maybe they discover it in the same way that we have, or maybe they discover something novel and new about it, a, a, an angle that we haven't considered. And, you know, I'm certainly interested in all these new people coming into the space and, and getting their intellectual firepower uh, made available to us all so that we can continue to understand ourselves. Cause like, even though we're early and it seems like we're trying to kind of shepherd people in, we're still very much a part, like caught up in this phenomenon in this process. And we're still being upgraded by it. And we're still, uh, developing and enhancing our understanding about what it is and, you know, how it works. And the more, even the more kind of, uh, esoteric or elements of it, you know, the, again, we're all, we haven't reached the bottom of the rabbit hole. Nobody has, it doesn't seem right. So we're all still, uh, on that journey of discovery. And I think if it's going to have lasting staying power, and if it's not going to be corrupted, we have to resist the urge of institutionalizing the understanding of it or something like that. I love that. The, the Bitcoin hero's journey. All of us are, are a part of it. All of us have to go through this battle. Um, one of the battles I think that all of us face on a day-to-day -day basis is the different FUD topics that get brought up. Uh, I myself have one or two topics where if someone says it to me, I just get angry. And I will jam so many facts down your throat that you, you're frozen. You have no response. Is there a FUD topic that really grinds your gears that you're just like, you're so dumb for thinking this and this is why? Like, uh, I'll, I'll start with mine. I'll say that the use sure. of Bitcoin for illicit activities, like I will say this every single time. If you count up how much Bitcoin is used for all illegal activities across the entire history of Bitcoin, I promise you it's less than the amount of US dollars that was used in the last five years. I've even changed my in the last five years, the more US dollars exchanging hands illegally than Bitcoin is. I guess my answer would be this. For most people, the FUD isn't genuine critique. It's meant to be just lobbing FUD at you because like they don't want to know the answer, right? And if it's that type of people that just want an argument or want to be dismissive, then like I, I don't even engage and it's obvious, you know, from the outset. And I, I have to say, like, apart from uh, my immediate family uh, who, you know, I just like to kind of harass for fun about Bitcoin, uh, I'm pretty zen about the orange pilling. I mean, I, I don't usually when I meet new people, I don't even tell them that I'm involved in Bitcoin whatsoever because I, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's all going to happen in due course. And, and I don't, you know, I, I do the podcast and I put out information in another way. I don't need to be so directly uh, persuasive. But if people are genuine in those questions, like, hey, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to understand this stuff. I, I read an article the other day where, you know, it talked about volatility or it talked about, uh, like you said, you know, you're being used for drugs and stuff like that. Is there any truth to this? Like, is that what you think? Then, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll share my perspective with them and, and kind of uh, help them understand 
that there's a lot of misunderstandings, both intentional and unintentional, um, and different people benefit from propagating FUD and all that kind of stuff. And I'll, if you know, like, like anyone, if anyone's ever genuine about any topic, I love those conversations. Doesn't matter if it's Bitcoin or religion or you know, science of any kind, like, or history, those are great. You know, that's an opportunity to learn and, and share perspectives. But if it's just, um, you know, we all have encountered those arrogant people in our lives who are just like, oh yeah, drug money or, you know, like whatever, keep going nerd or whatever the insult is, like, what's the point in engaging those conversations? It's, they're basically just doing it to either get you mad or dismiss you. And there's, there's no real point. Hugh, I'll answer this as well. I know me uh, having an engineering degree by, uh, by, by trade, by going to college, um, I'd always grind my gears when people bring up the energy FUD. And, you know, um, it's, we're going down that path in a way that, you know, governments might say, oh, okay, you know, if your house ends in, a two, in an even number, you got to turn off your electricity for days that are Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday, and then they flip-flop. And then the other, if your ends in an even or odd or even, whatever, you have, you've got to do the inverse. Um, and, you know, just in how clown, words, clown world has revealed itself this year of staying locked in your homes, you know, getting your salary cut, wearing masks, get it, you have to get vaccinated. I know that there's going to be people that are ratting people out like, oh, I saw the headlights on in their house in the midst of winter, or, you know, I saw them turn on the heat and I saw smoke coming out of their smokestack and they're going to like try and uh, report people for using energy if we literally have a collapse of our grids and stuff. So that's just something that like grinds my gears when people say like, oh, energy use is maleficent or, um, you know, harmful to the environment or harmful to other people, or it's bad to use energy. Uh, that just really gets me going. Real quick. So, sorry, John. I, I yeah. do want to interject because in the state of Texas, they have literally created a law to incentivize snitching fucking bullshit i'm not going to dive into that law of the marriage because as three men we should not have an opinion on that and just listen to the women in our lives of what they say and need that's my two cents there and energy fund absolutely if, if you just look up how much it costs or how much energy every single atm in the united states uses up to operate it's more than bitcoin plain and simple that is all john sorry to interrupt you please well i'm just basically echoing that by saying that's why Again, I'm pretty zen about it all, but it's easy, like this ESG stuff and the, and the associated, or maybe let's say the, the instigation for it amongst the climate catastrophist sort of narrative, um, it's brought a moral dimension to the uses of, usage of energy. And I think that's why, you know, that's why right from the get-go, so many of us were like, it's never going to be enough. You, know, you shouldn't kowtow to this stuff because it's not about the fact that Bitcoin uses 40% or 70% or 90% or 100% clean, you know, quote unquote, clean energy like hydro or solar. It's, it's not about that. That's just what they're latching on to maybe because it's easy right now, even though, as we all know, like Bitcoin probably uses more, you know, quote unquote, clean or renewable energy than most industries. But it's that they don't see the energy being devoted to Bitcoin as a worthwhile use of energy. And it's like, hold on, when was that any of your business? Like if I want to put on crazy Christmas lights at, you know, December or keep them up all year long, like nobody's got an issue with that. Right. If I want to leave my lights on all the time, you know, so I think it was, it, it's just that, that, that there was, if you don't understand Bitcoin and in particular, if your interests are not aligned with Bitcoin, i.e. if you're, you know, uh, aligned with the existing monetary system, 
then it's just a way of dismissing and, and discrediting the enterprise entirely and, and trying, you know, we were talking about that grip of control earlier, trying to maintain a grip of control over this thing in any way possible, you know, and I, it'll play out. And I know some people don't think it's such a bad thing and other people do. And some companies are uh, follow, you know, adhering to it. Others are trying to take advantage of, uh, of it in different ways. So it'll play out and um, the jurisdictions, I guess, that get it more right will benefit from that for a period of time. But uh, as we say, everything is good for Bitcoin in the end and all the FUD is ultimately, you know, just that. But it doesn't it doesn't stop it from happening. And I would think that we're in for especially given what you mentioned earlier about, you know, bad guys using it. We're probably in for uh, a lot more FUD in the not too distant future. I mean, fuck, we might even be bad guys at some point, right? Or at least labeled as such. Hey, let me tell you guys. Shadow, shadowy of, super coders. All, all of you who uh, have now been listed by the Canadian government as a terrorist for donating to the trucker campaign, uh, I welcome you with open arms. I have been labeled such since about 2001 in my country. So if you need help dealing with this, feel free to reach out as always. Very Not nice. to make light of the situation, but genuinely to, to showcase how ridiculous it is. Um, John, I do want to ask, uh, we have a little bit of time left if, if you'll entertain us and stick around, but I want to ask a little bit now about the conference. You know, we're all going to be in Miami. We're really excited to get down there. Uh, what is, is there anything in particular that you are most excited to see this year at Bitcoin 22? I'm most excited to hang out in the grounds with the plebs. I mean, that's what I did for most of the time uh, last year. Just meet everyone who I interacted with on Twitter or podcasts over the preceding two years. I mean, there's not, there's really nothing better. And then, you know, there's always like a dinner or drinks at night and there's always all these peripheral events and you just get to strengthen those relationships. As far as speakers are concerned, um, I mean, Bukele apparently has some cool announcements he's going to make. I don't know if you guys have the inside track on that, but uh, I'm looking forward to what that is. Um, but of course, when Peterson was announced, I was, you know, I was super stoked about that. It was, and by the way, it was Richard James. He was the fourth uh, on that podcast initially with Peterson. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, it's been interesting to watch his slow kind of uh, drop down the rabbit hole. And I always knew that, once his brain kind of latched onto it, it wouldn't be able to let it go. And I think we're kind of seeing that now and I'll be interested to hear from him and, and, you know, see how far he is, you know, there's, there's obvious people approach it at different ways and he has a very busy life. So maybe he can't obsess about it as much as, you know, the three of us might, but it'll be interesting to, uh, to hear his, his current thoughts on it. And what I'm, what I'm really interested in hearing is his impression of the event, you know, because, Maybe up till this point, you know, he's interacted with a few of us on podcasts and stuff and probably met some in real life. But what's he going to think about such a like huge and just really well done, re amazing vibes? Like, you know, most of the people there are just awesome. And so many like it's it's a it's an event, right? Like the, the this Bitcoin it, the last year, last year was amazing. And this year is obviously going to be bigger and, and more crazy. But I think like, what's he going to think that this phenomenon is at that kind of a scale and there's that much kind of passion and interest and, and he, hopefully he'll have a chance to hear and speak with some of the other, you know, big headliners. And 
I think it'll probably leave an impression on them. So it'll, it'll be interesting to hear that, but, but everyone, man, I mean, it's family and that's the best part about it. You get to go and, and hang out with all your brothers and sisters and there's nothing better. All you plebs out there listening, you heard it here. John's trying to hang out with you. So make sure you find him. And as always, you know, the rule, if you find me and I'm not too busy, we'll roll one up and we'll smoke it together. <laughs> uh, uh, to, to your point though, we're, we're watching this influx of people like Jordan Peters oh, before we go down that rabbit hole, use code YTMAC to get 10% off. It's literally all over the screen. If you have not realized that that is the code that helps Chris and I keep our jobs after the conference, you've been under a rock for some time. So please use code YTMAG and get 10% off. Um, now, to actually have this conversation, we're watching people like Jordan Peterson get involved. We watched over the last, I'd say, 18 months, people like Ray Dalio get involved, Kevin O'Leary, who's famous for Shark Tank, like very loudly accused Pomp of pushing forward a Ponzi scheme and then flip, flip the script. Um, and as we see these sort of big, prominent investor types and just public figures get involved in Bitcoin, what are your thoughts on that? How, what effect do you think that has on both the short-term and long-term prospects of Bitcoin? I mean, it probably doesn't have much influence on the long-term prospects. Short-term, you know, if, if Ray and Peter Thiel and O'Leary and Elon come out in the same month and say, you know, it's, it's a 50% allocation in our fund, then that might be the type of news that gets some people off the sidelines or some capital that's been waiting on the sidelines might get FOMO, like some of that institutional capital might come in and there might be a price spike. But then when they peel it, you know, when they pull it back, you know, two quarters from now and say, oh, it was just a temporary allocation, you know, and now we've pared it down to 5% and that hype goes away. So those, those sorts of announcements and those sorts of people don't really interest me. And also like, I understand that not everyone's going to be like a maximalist pleb sort of mentality about this stuff. But like there is a difference between a sailor and a Kevin O'Leary, right? Like, and he, and both ostensibly extremely wealthy prior to Bitcoin. So it's not just it's not just a wealth effect that's taking place, and nor is it just like the expectation of mad gains, right? It, there, there's something else happening. And I would say like when Sailor came in, he really fell down the rabbit hole and, and seemed to go deep. Whereas I think someone like Kevin O'Leary, at least at this stage, is like, yeah. Well, first of all, I think he has a broader crypto strategy, that case in particular. But I think um, he sees it as, you know, potential return. But I think he may see it as something that he will sell for fiat in the future. Whereas the three of us and Sailor and many others probably know that Bitcoin is the exit strategy. And with that comes a different way, you know, a different mentality, a different way of investigating the, the, the meaning and the understanding of all this stuff. So, um, you know, it's for everyone and everyone can come in and they'll, they'll do their thing. And it's, it's, it's fun. Like I, I remember meeting, uh, Kevin last year at the conference, but, um, not everyone's going to, you know, become a, a hardcore maximalist laser eyed pleb, you know, and I, I'd put sailor well, in that category. You know? Well, I, I am kind of curious though, like, is it necessarily a bad thing if we have people who get involved in Bitcoin and have thousands of Bitcoin, given the net worths of people like Dalio and and uh, O'Leary, but they don't see it the way we see it. So in theory, they're going to end up selling their Bitcoin to people like us at a very high price. Yeah, but it's still going to keep going higher. And 
in the way that we see it, should we be actually right about the way the end game of all of this? Is it necessarily a bad thing? No, not at all. I mean, they're just, it's transactions. It's current transactions and future transactions. And that's what an economy is, is predicated on, you know? So whether they stay for a year, 10 years, forever, Laura, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. So I, I don't, I don't mean to say that they're bad. I'm just, I'm just saying like, they haven't taken the orange pill the way some of us have, and that's absolutely fine. Their liquidity for the network, their transactions, they're supporting infrastructure in different ways, they're investing in companies. It's, you know, it's all good. I don't, I don't hate on them at all. You know, but you, you can tell when you're in the presence of uh, another laser-eyed pleb. I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Do we think 100k this year? Oh man. I don't know. I don't, I've, I've never done a, a price prediction, so I probably won't start now, but I will just yeah. say that um, hopefully not too soon because it seems like uh, the conference in Miami is going to be quite a party. And I, it wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have to like rally F1 again for the hundred K party, like a month later in Miami, you know, we want to space it out a little bit, right. A, end of year I'd be okay with, or even 2023, but I, you know, nobody wants to fly right back to Miami right after having a conference and still being hung over, you know? So hopefully, hopefully we have a little bit of breathing room afterwards. Fair enough. If you need me though, I might just stay camped out at Miami beach for, <laughs> for a month or two. Who knows? Yeah. It could be worse. <laughs> um, I do want to give you the opportunity as well to maybe just share with, with our audience a little bit of, of what you have cooking, what you've, what you're working on and where maybe some of our audience can also find your podcast. Sure. Um, yeah, my headspace lately, both on the podcast and some of the writing I've done or one piece I've published, another one I'm working on is, is really trying to dig into some of the, the things we touched on here today, which is like, you know, how does this weird protocol that exists on the internet, how and why does this protocol influence people's values and behavior so much, you know, and uh, one of the fascinating phenomenons that I've been following for years now is like these individual transformations that seem to be very common. They're not, they don't always take place in the same way. And they're not always, always the same, of course, but like people seem to change in many cases, fairly dramatically and reorient their lives and that kind of stuff as a result of learning about this thing. And, you know, so I, I've been trying to investigate why that is and that, investigation and thinking about it and reading and writing and speaking with people has kind of brought me to the doorstep of other domains of the utmost meaning and, and other domains that uh, have a strong transformative effect on people. You know, we were re referencing religion and spirituality and that kind of stuff before. And that's kind of where I'm winding up with this. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to tease out what's going on there you know, and how, how should we be understanding or approaching this thing and what context should we be putting it in? So um, that's where I've been doing most of my stuff. And I do that on my podcast. It's called Bitcoin Rapid Fire. And, you know, I have a sub stack and stuff, which you can find on, uh, on Twitter. And that's where, oh, and I have a website too, bitcoinrapidfire.com, where all that stuff is. And, um, and I also do the CT podcast. It's called Closing the Loop. Um, CT is a subsidiary of a big Norwegian energy company. Came into the space last year. They released a, a shareholder letter that I think made the rounds. Uh, a lot of people read Norwegian billionaire who, you know, kind of got orange pilled and wanted to be more involved in the space. And CT has been doing 
a lot of stuff behind the scenes this this upcoming year probably going to do a lot more so i'm super excited for that and my role there is primarily helping them with the podcast and pushing forward some of the podcasting 2.0 uh technology there so Gigi's another member of the team and a bunch of other great guys that uh are doing a lot of work to make it so that value can be you know what we call it kind of set free you know so people can express value and the implicit and explicit censorship that exists in the media publishing landscape today can be diminished and, you know, people can speak freely and express themselves freely and not be uh, detrimentally affected when doing so is counter to dominant narratives or platform wokeism or any of that kind of stuff. So that's, uh, that's what I'm up to. Love it. For those of you who have been enjoying this conversation that we've had with John, be sure to check it out. Uh, it sounds like you'll just be able to dive deeper and deeper down these rabbit holes. Uh, John, could you maybe tease something that you're working on for maybe the next episode that we didn't touch on here for, for those who, who may be curious? You know, talking about these deep conversations about um, deeper levels of meaning around this thing. I've been doing a series with my good friend, Eric Kaysen, and, uh, He's done a lot of great writing at cryptosovereignty.org, where he shares a lot of his perspective on this, this kind of stuff. And it's just, you know, we would always have these conversations when we would speak and they'd be kind of, we'd almost think like this is a little bit too bizarre and weird to like put out publicly. But then, you know, over time, you're just like, well, fuck it. Why? Who cares? You know, why not just let it rip and put it out publicly? And if people enjoy it, then great. And uh, so they're like one to two hour conversations where we just, go in those directions that seem completely batshit insane, right? You know, like talk about religion and the second coming and all this kind of stuff. And for the purpose of, I mean, you kind of have to say it, say the words and share the ideas around to see if they actually are nonsense or if there's any credibility to them. And that, from my perspective, that's how we, you know, refine our understanding and push it forward. And so um, I've been really enjoying that series with him. And the most recent one dropped yesterday, I think. And uh, the feedback's been great too. So what I'm finding is that we're not the only weirdos uh, thinking about this thing in those sort of terms. And people seem to appreciate that someone is exploring these more, uh, these ideas that we might be more sheepish about sharing around the the family dinner table, you know? So um, I guess that's where, you know, the thing that I've been most enjoying lately. What topic is taboo right now at the family, at the Vallis family dinner table? (laughs) Well, nothing really, because I've always been the weirdo of the family and everyone knows to expect, um, you know, that I, I might say anything at any time. But I mean, my, I wrote this piece recently. It's called Money Messiah and subtitle God, Bitcoin and the Evolution of Consciousness. And it's a 40 page uh, article about those issues. And, you know, not only do I kind of have to tackle right at the beginning the modern day understanding of, of religion and how perhaps we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, or maybe it needs another look as so many things do when you start to understand Bitcoin or when Bitcoin starts to reshape your perspective on things, you realize like, oh, maybe I need to look at this differently. And maybe I dismiss this or that thing too quickly and then lead into, you know, a, a fairly lengthy discourse on value and meaning. And then I kind of finish with uh, looking at, Bitcoin in the context of some of the most profound, you know, religious occurrences in the past and how we interpretations that might be applicable to, applicable to Bitcoin. And so, um, you know, those are pretty far out 
things. And I bring that up actually, because my, my dad read it. And I usually like, he, he, actually I'm bringing him to the Bitcoin conference, which I'm super pumped about because he, in over the last year, he's become pretty orange pilled, but he's been listening to my podcast since the beginning and early days, it was like, you know, not standard conversations. I like to think like mine were always a little bit different, but it would be like, you know, Jeff Booth would come on and we'd talk about what he talks about and they'd, it would be more mainstream stuff. And now it's way more in the direction of like making these mad speculations about what this thing may mean in a spiritual or religious context. And uh, I don't know really yet. I haven't really talked, had the chance to talk to him. So I don't know how he feels about some of the things that I wrote in that, that piece, but he's, uh, I'm going to be with him soon for the conference. So I'm sure we'll have lots of time to to talk about it, but it's that kind of stuff. And I guess my opinion, just to cap it off, is like you got to risk going too far to know that you've gone far enough. Like you got to no ideas can be so taboo or so off limits that you can't use them because then you might potentially be cutting yourself off to a, a more truthful understanding of things. So that's what I use, you know, the podcast for and the writing for is just to, and I finish it all by saying, yeah, maybe I am insane. Maybe we're all a little nuts. You know, that's we got to appreciate that that's a possibility. But if not, and if the logic, you know, in particular in this written piece has any validity, what does that mean? Like, and how should we, how should we approach this emerging understanding of this thing and how it's reframing and reorienting our understanding of so many other things? And that's what's so engaging about uh, being involved in all this, you know, for all of us, like we're, you one of the things that you could say is like pretty common amongst the quote unquote Bitcoin culture is like, there's a pretty like ferocious appetite for new knowledge and understanding. It's like why, when you see like a new podcast drops with someone that you're really interested in, you're like, you put it to the top of the list and you listen to it immediately. And why you, you, there's just, there's a, a, a hunger to understand what's going on both in the macro world and with Bitcoin and with psychology and history. And maybe it's a self-selection thing and those people are being brought in and just amplified, or maybe I've observed that, some people that never had interest in any of that kind of stuff are kind of experiencing some kind of an awakening. And again, this is why the religious language might be applicable because that's not a super normal thing. So we're like, I keep saying we're wrapped up in this. We're not like, we're not on the sidelines observing it. We're in the eye of the storm. So sometimes it can be difficult to get the proper vantage point to, to see the big picture. But I think all of us attempting to do so and seeing with clarity and refining our understanding is the best way to make sure that we're engaging this properly and leveraging it for maximal benefit in our, in our lives and the lives with, and in our interactions with the people that we care about. So on we go. Awesome, John. Well, you've left me with a lot to digest and think about, and I have my call to action to go and read this, this uh, paper that you wrote. Uh, excited to meet you. Excited to meet your father down in Bitcoin, Miami. Guys, get your tickets. Use code YTMAC to get 10% off. 